only April, but I was wondering, what, what would you say is the most popular Christmas story? What comes to your mind? I mean, when I think, I think of Dickens' Christmas Carol. I mean, that's the one that, that pops into my head. It's one of my favorites for sure. I, I just feel this certain sort of connection to Tiny Tim for some reason. You know, I... Yeah... I got a self-esteem problem. Uh, actually, when I was a little guy, he was my favorite character, you know? The following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. It's written in the 1840s, and even though it was written so long ago, it still remains popular today. In fact, I looked up this week like how many adaptations of A Christmas Carol had taken place, and there are literally hundreds of them. Films and plays, uh, movies, television shows, radio, opera even, uh, cartoons, graphic novels, songs. And it's a good reason. There's a good reason for that. It's a wonderful story. It's cleverly written. It's a story about redemption, about caring for those in need, about having a heart of compassion. There have been many other stories that have been written with similar themes. But what is it that sets... A Christmas carol apart from the others that that has caused it to be such an enduring story. I think one of the things is those memorable visions that Scrooge has, isn't it? While the words of, you know, Bob Cratchit and uh, Scrooge's nephew Fred and, and those two men who came seeking donations from Scrooge, their words did not move Scrooge's cold and selfish heart. But those visions certainly did. By Christmas morning, he woke up a changed man. And I brought, I thought about the Christmas carol and I brought it up this week primarily because of not only the effect of those visions on Scrooge, but we're going to be looking at some visions in the book of Zechariah together. And those visions that God gave him certainly had an impact not only on Zechariah, but also on the people of Judah. God gave him eight visions to be exact. And, and like Scrooge's visions, they too are, are memorable, vivid, and impactful. If you remember Zechariah the prophet, he'd been commissioned by God along with Haggai to come to the people of Judah, those who had been in exile in Babylon and return back to Judah. And God had raised up these two prophets in order to encourage the people to turn their hearts to the Lord and to rebuild his house, his temple. Haggai was the first to speak and the people actually responded favorably to him. Within three weeks of his message, they got back to work on the temple. And then God raised up Zechariah. And we looked at his first message last week and saw that, that God wanted a people not only to be building his temple, but he wanted a people to return to him with a whole heart. You see, God wasn't just interested in a house for worship. He wanted a people of worship. And so he sent Zechariah. And his first message to them was to turn away from their sin completely and with a full heart and a heart of faith, follow the Lord and build his house. And so a little over a month after they began construction is when God raised up this prophet Zechariah as well to come along Haggai. And about three months after his first message, Zechariah's first message, that is, he then shows Zechariah eight visions, visions that were intended to give God's people hope. They were intended to encourage them to persevere in the work that God had placed before them. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of those eight visions. So please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to see from this first vision, God's zealous compassion for his people. And I think as we look closely at this vision, you're going to be surprised at the way or how that compassion is revealed. So if you would, please stand in honor of God's word as I read this first vision beginning in Zechariah 1 verse 7. God speaking through Zechariah says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet 
the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you've been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Oh, Father, give us insight now to what you are communicating through this vision, not only what it meant for people in Zechariah's day, but, but Lord, what it means to us. Lord, teach us about you. Give us a greater glimpse the glory of Christ as we look, Lord, at His Word and what, Lord, He has to speak to us. I pray that He would be honored, that that You would, Lord, move in us. Because as we know, Father, if You do not move, we, we will not be moved. Lord, it's only through You that we can understand these words. It's only through You that we can be motivated to live them out. And I pray, God, that You would please show mercy and kindness to us this morning by doing that. In the name of Christ, amen. Thank you. Now, Zechariah begins here with an introduction in verse 7, which he tells us first when these visions took place. He says, on the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. Now, that second year of Darius should be extremely familiar to us now. That's the year in which Haggai and Zechariah were raised up together to prophesy. This date, the 24th day of the 11th month, corresponds to February 15th, in the year 519. It's about six months after Haggai delivered his first message, and about two months after Haggai delivered his last one. And so Zechariah began his ministry right in the middle of Haggai's ministry. And Zechariah again brings attention in verse 7, as he did back in verse 1, that he had been given a prophetic office, that he is declaring the word of the Lord that had been given to him. And on one particular night, that word came to him in the form of visions. And we know that it is a vision that he saw from the first words in verse 8, because he says, I saw, I saw at night. And a vision is different than a dream. In a dream, the observer is passive. They're asleep. They're just seeing things that or in their minds, and God at times used dreams to communicate messages. We see that primarily uh, you know, in Daniel and many other times where God did that. But a vision is different. A vision is a situation where the viewer is conscious. He's seeing events take place, and he's able to interact. He, he sees them, and we see in Zechariah's vision here that he's interacting with an angel, just as John did in the book of Revelation. God had said in Numbers 12, 6, that visions would be one of the ways that he would communicate to the prophets and through the prophets. And indeed, we see many examples of this as well in Ezekiel and Daniel and Amos and Jeremiah. And then that famous vision in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the throne room of God before him. But visions are not confined just to the Old Testament. You remember Peter had a vision or that sheet with the unclean animals that came down before him or or Paul had a vision of a man in Acts 16, I think it was, from Macedonia who was beseeching Paul to come to them. And of course, probably the most famous series of visions in the Bible or in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. A book which, interesting enough, is very much like Zechariah. And it is there the Apostle John saw many visions about what would happen at the end of the world. But why did God give visions? Why did he not just give the message directly to the prophets, the words that he wanted preached? Why 
give it to them in the form of visions at times. Well, as James Boyce points out from the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1, it says there that God spoke to the prophets of old in many portions and in many ways. One of the many ways was through visions. And visions can prove to be very effective. These word, these, these images, these pictures that are expressed as Zechariah describes them and others who were given visions can, can really help us to understand the situation better. It brings emotional impact. It brings clarity. Jesus was a master at this. He would often, when he was teaching, he would point out specific objects and, and, and indicate using them to indicate certain truths. Or he would often give these parables, these verbal word pictures, in order to communicate truths to his people. And so Zechariah here, he's given a series of visions to communicate an important message to the people of God at a crucial time in their history. Because if they had slipped back, if they refused to work on the temple, if they did not turn back to God, they too would suffer the same thing their forefathers did. They too would, would become apathetic once again. They too would turn away from God once again. And they too would follow the very paths that their ancestors did, which Zechariah had just warned them not to do. And so... Zechariah is given these visions. And as we look at these visions, we have to understand that one of the great challenges in interpreting visions is being able to distinguish between what parts of the visions are actual symbols that carry meaning and are intended to communicate something versus those parts of the vision that are just described in order to give a picture of the scene, the situation. Oftentimes, people read into things and give fanciful explanations of various aspects of the vision that have nothing to do with the message. We see this a lot with parables where people run off with certain details of these parables that Jesus spoke and they miss the the whole point of the message. So we have to be careful of that. While we need to make every effort to understand all the aspects within these visions, we want to make sure we don't miss the main point. Why God gave these specific ones to Zechariah in particular. And as we look to Zechariah's first vision, there is one individual that is focused upon, one that requires our attention, and that is the man in the myrtle trees. He is critical to understanding this vision and also to understanding God and the point he's trying to make and how he's trying to encourage the people through it. And so as we look at Zechariah's first vision this morning, we're going to look at it in three points. First will be the scene, and the second, the man... And then we'll look at the message. Let's first focus on the scene, verses 8 through 11. What is it that Zechariah observes in this vision and then describes to us? Well, if you notice there, beginning in verse 8, he tells us the first thing he mentions is there's a man that he sees on a red horse in the midst of these myrtle trees. And then behind that man, there are several other horses with various colors that he notes. And then after seeing this initial picture... He turns to the angel who was with him, who we'll see him in all of these visions that Zechariah has. He's what many call the interpreting angel. He was put there by the Lord in order to help Zechariah understand these visions, much like took place with Daniel when God sent an angel, uh, Gabriel, to explain to him the things that he had seen. So Zechariah has this interpreting angel with him, and he turns to him and he says, What are these? And it wasn't that Zechariah didn't understand the things that were in front of him. He'd seen a man before. He'd seen a horse before. He'd seen myrtle trees. He wasn't asking what they were. His question was asking, what does they mean? Why am I seeing this picture? What is it supposed to be communicating to me? What's the point? Before considering what comes next in his vision, it would be helpful to understand some of the facets of what he's seeing in front of him. He sees in front of him myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are indigenous to Israel. They're really shrubs or, or bushes which can grow to upwards of 8, 9, 10 feet tall, and so they look like trees. Myrtles have these fragrant green, dark, dark green leaves and, and also these scented flowers. The Hebrew word for myrtle is hadas. Do you remember Esther's name, Hadassah? It was given to her that communicated her beauty. It's rooted in the word myrtle for myrtles. Maybe her middle name was Myrtle. I don't know. But these Myrtle trees would be readily recognized by the people of Judah because they were common. In fact, they were so common that Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser said that Israel, a popular name for Israel was Myrtle. Because of that, many commentators say, well, the Myrtles in this vision then represent Israel. 
And the fact that they are located in this ravine or a glen indicates or symbolizes the present lowly state of Israel. Certainly that would fit the current condition being experienced by the people of Judah. But we also need to remember this. When Zechariah sees this picture of these myrtle trees in front of him, and again understanding that the prevalence of these myrtle trees within Israel, I think the first thing that comes to his mind is, we're in Israel. And some indicate, some believe perhaps that the notation that they were in a valley or a glen or a ravine may indicate they were in the Kidron Valley just outside of Jerusalem. We can't know that for sure, but but one thing that sticks out is not the focus here isn't the myrtles, but again, the thing that he points out is the man who's standing on a horse within the myrtle trees. Zechariah sees this man, and he's a man mounted upon a red horse. That word for red can also be a reddish brown. And, and behind this man on the red horse, he sees or he describes other horses. Some say there are three other horses because it mentions red, sorrel, and white. But actually, the Hebrew literally reads, behind him, horses, red, sorrel, and white. There could have been more than three. In fact, Calvin, among many other scholars, believes there was a troop of horsemen behind this man in the myrtles, a troop that was organized in three groups by the color of their steeds. In the ancient Near East, horses often represented or were connected with war, such as later on in Zechariah 9, 10, there'll be a reference to that. And so their, their presence here in this vision may indicate some sort of military operation taking place. These colors, which have fascinated many scholars, I'm amazed at how many different explanations of the reason and purpose and symbols of these colors are. Some say the color red, it's significant, and it's used often in scriptures to indicate judgment or vengeance. Revelation 6.4 describes a, a horse, a rider on a red horse, who is going out, who takes peace from the earth. White is often associated with, with triumph or victory. In fact, Revelation 6-2, there's a rider on a white horse who goes out and he's conquering in battle. And if you remember, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes from heaven to conquer his enemies riding a great white horse. And the third color that's mentioned here, it's often translated as sorrel. Actually, nobody's really sure what the word there is, what the color is. Some say it's a red-white mixture, so it's like a pinkish horse, which would be kind of strange. Um, others say that it's a red horse with brown patches, or that it's a, a dappled horse, that it's got a mixture of colors. Nobody's quite sure, so if there is an intended symbol here, its meaning is lost. Some scholars say, well, well, the meaning's really that there's a mixed state of affairs. It's neither peace nor war. It's neither victory nor loss. I just think they're punting, really. They don't really know what it, what it means. But these colors could have some significance. They could symbolize some important things, as seems to be the case later in Zechariah's eighth vision. And certainly their presence of these horses brings a militaristic tone to the, the vision that he's seeing. But I don't think that they represent coming, a coming war of judgment. For notice, they were not sent for battle, were they? They were sent for reconnaissance. In verse 10, the man in the myrtles answers Zechariah's question. When Zechariah asks, what are these? The man in the myrtles is sitting on the red horse, says that these are those who've been sent out to patrol. The word there is literally to go to and fro, to walk back and forth. It's this constant motion and surveying that they're doing. We know these horses are not alone. They have riders upon them because the riders speak in verse 11 as they report back to the man in the myrtle trees what they saw. Notice there it says that they communicate the message. We've been back and forth. We're patrolling. We've been to and fro over the earth. And behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. The word peaceful there is the idea of, of an inhabited relaxation, being settled, being at rest. The word quiet carries the idea of, of lying down without being hassled. You know, like when you go to take a nap and your kids come in or your dog comes in and they wake you up or they... Well, this word is the opposite of that. You don't have anybody interfering with your sleep. There's peace. Now, it's interesting, this report that he gives, because this image, this series of events of horses going out with riders upon them to get a report and then coming back to report what's going on, 
That would have been a familiar scenario in the day of Zechariah when he received this vision. Because if you remember last time, we talked about when Darius took the throne his first year after he took the throne from um, Cyrus's son, Kamibses, who died, there was unrest, there was rebellion within the Persian Empire. And so Darius spent that first year quelling that rebellion. And one of the things he would do was send out horsemen to go out to the various reaches of his empire and then bring back messages to him of what was going on. That's the picture that's being given here. And the report that is being given, the response is that everything is peaceful and quiet, which would match what we know took place in Persia at that time. Because by Darius's second year, he had stamped out all the rebellion. There was peace throughout the empire. This gives us an idea of the scene. But all of this is really background. It's just meant to give background and a setting for the key feature of this vision. For again, the essential aspect of this vision is not this horse patrol. It's not the color of these horses. It's not the fact that there are myrtle trees present, that they are present within a ravine. And it's not even the angel who's speaking with Zechariah or Zechariah himself. Those are all features of this vision. But the primary, most important aspect of this vision, again, is the man in the myrtle trees. He is what matters. Because notice, he's the first thing that Zechariah takes note of and describes. He is the one in front of the other writers. He is the one to whom the other writers report their message. And in a moment we'll see he is the one who makes an appeal to God based on the report that he received. Just who is he? Who is this man in the myrtle trees? He's introduced in verse 8. He speaks in verse 10. And in verse 11 he's identified. And we learn there that he is none other than the angel of the Lord. And we can be certain of that. There's some confusion as to some scholars think, well, there's a, there's a man on a horse in the myrtle trees, and there's the angel of the Lord, and there's the angel with Zechariah. And, but actually, if you notice, each time that the man in the myrtle trees mentioned, it's, it talks about one standing in the myrtles. Verse 8, standing in the myrtles. Verse 10, standing in the myrtles. Verse 11, angel of the Lord, standing in the myrtles. The man in the myrtles is the angel of the Lord. This is significant. Angel of the Lord is a prominent figure in the Old Testament. In fact, he first appears to Hagar in Genesis 16. We see him again in Genesis 18 when he tells Abraham that he would have a son within a year. In fact, the angel of the Lord is the one that goes to Sodom and calls down fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Angel of the Lord spoke again to Abraham in Genesis 22 and stopping him from sacrificing Isaac. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. He was the one standing in front of Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22. The angel of the Lord appeared as the captain of the Lord's army to Joshua in Joshua 5.14. He appeared numerous times in the book of Judges, particularly to Gideon and to Samson's parents. The angel of the Lord visited a discouraged Elijah in 1 Kings 19 to strengthen him. And I don't know if you caught it this morning, but in the psalm that Brother Kempis read in Psalm 34, it mentions the angel of the Lord as well. In verse 7, it says there, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. We see an example of that in King Hezekiah's day, when the angel of the Lord appeared in response to King Hezekiah's prayer as the Assyrians gathered around Jerusalem and the angel of the Lord one night destroyed an army of nearly 200,000 men by himself. This is one bad dude. Incidentally, that was the last time the angel of the Lord appeared until this first vision in Zechariah, about 200 years. In these passages and many others, we see that the angel of the Lord is one who comes to earth to comfort. He's one who comes to earth to protect. And he's one who comes to earth to bring judgment, God's judgment. And in addition to these things, we see here in Zechariah, the angel of the Lord also comes to comfort and he comes to intercede look again at verse 12 he cries out there how long O yahweh how long O lord of hosts will you not have no compassion for your people and at first blush that prayer might seem kind of odd he had just been given a report from the the writers that all was peaceful and quiet and then all of a sudden the angel of the lord cries out how long O lord how long will you wait how long will you not show compassion that seemed might seem kind of strange. I mean, wouldn't it be a good thing if everything was peaceful in the surrounding lands? But you see, that peace, that quiet, that rest in the nations of the earth 
was not good news for God's people. Because if the earth was peaceful and quiet, if the nations around them were experiencing no conflict and were at rest, that would mean that the words that God spoke through Haggai not long before, just a few months earlier, that God would shake the nations, that he would bring judgment, the fact that it's peaceful and quiet would mean that's not happening. It would mean that God's people remained under the oppressive thumb of a pagan nation. It would mean that they are humbled still, that they are oppressed, that they are still scattered and afflicted. Because not all of the Jews came back from Babylon. They are still scattered. About 40-something thousand came back. And so the angel of the Lord, observing this condition, observing this situation, cries out in verse 12, how long is this going to go on? The angel of the Lord is burdened here. He's burdened for the plight of God's people. They've suffered in exile for 70 years. They return to this devastated homeland that's completely unprotected. The the capital city of Jerusalem is totally unprotected. No walls, no defense. The temple mount is in ruins. Their crops have yielded poorly. The surrounding population doesn't want them there. Kind of sounds familiar to today, doesn't it? So the angel of the Lord, he sees this condition amongst the people in that day, and he's sympathetic. He is burdened by the poor condition that they are in, and so he intercedes. I want to take a moment and look a little more closely at this angel of the Lord. Who is he? Who is he? And to do that, let's look at a few Old Testament passages together. Let's go back to where I mentioned before, the first appearance. Genesis 16. Genesis chapter 16. Please turn there. That's where Haggai, um, who had fled her mistress, Sarah, because of mistreatment, and she found herself alone in the wilderness, pregnant with Abraham's first son, Ishmael. We see in chapter 16 and verse 7 in Genesis that the angel of the Lord finds her, and he finds her by a water brook, a spring of water, and he tells her to go back to Sarah. And then look what happens next in verse 10. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. It appears here that the angel of the Lord is speaking in God's place. For instead of saying the Lord or Yahweh will greatly multiply, notice he says here, I will greatly multiply. Go down to verse 13. There we see Hagar's response. It says there that then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? Here she calls the angel of the Lord. You are a God who sees, indicating she's claiming to have seen God. And notice how the narrator here, who's Moses, notice how he says here that she called the name or that's a Hebrew idiom for she named. She gave the name to. But then he doesn't put here the angel of the Lord. He doesn't say that she named the angel of the Lord. You are a God who sees. Who is it that she says she names? She named the Lord. You are a God who sees. But who is it that was speaking to her? Who is it that was with her? The angel of the Lord. Yet Moses indicates she names the Lord. You're a God who sees. Flip over a couple chapters. Chapter 22 of Genesis. Here's the well-known account when God had asked Abraham, tested Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his son Isaac, his firstborn through his wife Sarah. And you remember the story very well in the scene. Abraham gathers the wood together and he takes his son on that three-day journey up to Mount Moriah. And as he places his son on the altar and just as he's ready to plunge in the knife, we read this in Genesis 22, 11. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So here the angel of the Lord is commending Abraham's faith. And did you catch how he says it? You have not only withheld your only, you have not withheld your only son from, did he say God? He says from me. But if you go back up to verse 2, who was it that gave him the instruction and the command to sacrifice Isaac? It wasn't the angel of the Lord that mentions there. It was God. And yet the angel of the Lord here says that you have not withheld your own son from me. Look down in verse 18. There the angel of the Lord then says, In your seed 
All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed. And here we see it again. You have obeyed my voice. But see in verse two, it says God is the one who gave him the instruction. Okay, let's look at one more passage. There's a lot of others, but one more. Exodus three. This one will make it crystal clear. In this passage, we have a a pivotal event in Israel's history. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Look with me at Exodus 3, verse 2. It says there, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Moses, in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush bush, and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the father of your of, and the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Okay, Bible students, let me ask you this question. See if you're observing here carefully. Verse 2, who does it say appeared to Moses? The angel of the Lord. Verse 4, who does it say called to Moses from the bush? God. And how does the angel of the Lord describe himself in verse 6? I am the God of your father. So what is this telling us? Who is the angel of the Lord? He's God. We could look at several more passages. In fact, this week, as I was doing my Bible reading in, in Judges, I read this passage in Judges 2.1. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Well, it was God who did those things. And yet the angel of the Lord is saying, I did them. So the angel of the Lord is the Lord. He is God. But If we go back to Zechariah's vision, remember the scene, man in the myrtles, who is the angel of the Lord. Here's the report. And then in verse 12, he cries out to God, to the Lord of hosts. He says, how long? And then in verse 13, he gets an answer. So how is that? We learn there that the angel of the Lord and the Lord of hosts are not the same person. Because they have a conversation. They speak to one another. First Chronicles 21, it says that God sent the angel of the Lord on an assignment of judgment. You remember there when, when David numbered the people and God had responded to give him consequences and the consequence that David chose was the Lord's chastisement for three days. Well, the, the means, the instrument of that punishment was the angel of the Lord. And it says God sent the angel of the Lord. So again, we see there are two distinct persons. I could bring up a number of passages, but they all teach that you combine them all together and look at them. They teach that the angel of the Lord is God. And yet there are two distinct persons. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, but yet they are just two separate persons. Going back to Zechariah's vision, John Walver then asks, how can a person be God and at the same time address God? Hmm. What do you think? Right? We're getting a glimpse here into the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. It's a pretty clear glimpse, I would say. The angel of the Lord is a member of the Trinity. The question is, which one? He's not the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is always referred to as the Spirit of the Lord, or God's Spirit, or my Spirit as God is speaking, or the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit's going to make an appearance in Zechariah in his fifth vision in chapter 4. We can also deduce the angel of the Lord is not the Father. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. Jesus said in John 6.46, No man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. First Timothy 6.16 says the same thing. So if the angel of the Lord is not the Holy Spirit, if the angel of the Lord is not the Father, who is He? God the Son. God the Son who becomes a man in the manger, given the name Jesus Christ. But he's God the Son. This conclusion is also supported by the fact that when we come to the New Testament, after the incarnation, 
we never see another appearance of the angel of the Lord. Also, Christ in both the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and in the New Testament as Jesus carries out the will of the Father on earth. We see that He is the instrument. He is the one who interacts with God's creation, with humanity. And in addition, it is Christ who shows us the Father. John 1.18 has said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Or in Hebrews 1.3, it says, The radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature is seen in Jesus. And these verses are not just supporting the fact that Jesus is God, but they also describe how Jesus shows us the Father. Not that He is the Father, but that He shows us the character and the glory and the nature of the Father. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. One God, one essence, distinct persons. You know, so many Christians tend to think that the Father was the only active member of the Trinity in the Old Testament. That Jesus waited until the manger before He got busy. That the Holy Spirit waited until Pentecost. But to the contrary, brothers and sisters, God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been active, extremely active, consistently active all through human history. The transcendent God is an imminent God. What's the significance of all this? Why is it so important understanding who the angel of the Lord is? Why is it important that we know that he is God the Son? How is this relevant to us, to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament era? Well, what we see in this vision from Zechariah, his first vision is of great significance to us. And knowing who the man in the myrtles is, is incredibly important. It means everything, really. We see here the man in the myrtles, the angel of the Lord, God the Son. We see in his response in verse 12, we're given a rare glimpse into the fellowship within the Trinity. Just like in John 17, as Jesus offers his high priestly prayer to the Lord, and we're, we're opened up, we can see what he prays, what he speaks to the Father. Well, here we're given in the Old Testament, in this vision, a similar glimpse. And we are also given a glimpse into the heart of Christ into the fact that Christ is and has always been a great, the great intercessor. Indeed, this vision would have been a great encouragement to the people in Zechariah's day because they knew the angel of the Lord to be the protector of Israel and, and seeing him in this vision, beseeching God on their behalf, would have been an incredible encouragement. And at the same time, for us, this is a wonderful picture of Christ our Lord. At the same time, we are reminded of Christ's intercession on our behalf. For we have to remember, we were in a pitiful state, lost in sin, doomed to destruction, having no hope, experiencing in our lives the ravages of our own sin. And in that condition, Jesus cries out, on our behalf, to the Father. Have compassion. Stay your hand. Show mercy. Extend grace. He says to the Father, do not give this sinner what she deserves. Do not give this rebel what he deserves. For I have paid their price. I have bought them with my own blood. I have purchased their salvation. Jesus makes intercession for you. And we're reminded of that here. It's incredibly encouraging. This is a precious reality. His amazing desire to intercede. His heart of mercy and compassion. His empathy for us. An empathy so great that, that He was willing to become a man, give His life on a cross so that He could be our great intercessor. And even while on the cross, we see that heart of intercession, don't we? As He cries out, Father, forgive them. And listen, Jesus will intercede for you if you confess your sins to Him. He will plead for you on your behalf if you earnestly seek His forgiveness. Jesus will gladly go before the Father in your stead if you desire to turn from your sin and put your trust in Him. Beloved, be comforted and encouraged by this. That intercession never stops. He is always interceding. 
even now. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, if anyone is sinning, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You have a constant advocate interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7, 25 says of Christ, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's presence in heaven is a constant reminder of the great interceder who is constantly interceding for his children. He doesn't stop. He doesn't grow tired of it. He doesn't grow weary. And sinned again. It's not it at all. When he looked upon the people of Judah and saw their condition... He didn't say, oh, brother, here they go again. He said, oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you wait to show compassion? He's the heart of an intercessor. Because of his death on the cross, no one can bring an accusation against you that will stick. (laughs) No one will bring an accusation that will stick. You will never be held accountable for your sin because he paid for it himself. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And we know that the Father always hears the prayers of His Son. Indeed, that's exactly what we see here in Zechariah's vision. For again, as as Christ cries out, as the angel of the Lord cries out to the Lord in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long? How long will you wait? Have compassion. Notice verse 13. The Lord answers. And it says he answers with gracious or or good and comforting words. We're going to look at those words. So far we've looked at the scene and the man. Now let's consider the time we have left the message. And that message is given in the good and comforting words of verses 14 to 17. That message wasn't just meant for Zechariah though. The message was meant for people of judah notice in verse 14 actually what happens is as christ intercedes on behalf of the people it says in verse 13 that the lord responds he answers and gives a message to the angel who was with the interpreting angel who was with zechariah and that angel then in turn gives a message to zechariah Again, we're given a glimpse there in the ministry of of angels and messengers that god sends and notice in verse 14 it says the angel who was speaking with me said to me proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice the angel doesn't just tell Zechariah to speak or to communicate the message. He says, proclaim it. It's a word that means to to cry out, to herald, to shout. And Zechariah was told here, shout it out, Zechariah, that God says, I am an exceedingly jealous God. I'm jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. The Hebrew is emphatic here says there literally, I am jealous with a great jealousy. There's intense emotion conveyed here. There's a passion, a zeal, a fervor. God's response is not a distant one, but an intimate one. Because the fires of jealousy have been stirred within his heart. And it's a, it's a godly jealousy. It's a pure jealousy. It's one that a commentator, John McKay, describes this way when he says, Godly jealousy is the reaction of love when it sees the bond of love threatened either by external factors or by the weakening affection of the other partner. God's love for His people is not a weak emotion. His anger is aroused when the relationship is threatened or when others take improper action against those who are His. I remember when we were in Malawi, um, we were in kind of a pretty dense section of people, a lot of vendors and things. It was kind of, we were a little bit, uneasy and so as we're going through this section a couple of members of our team we got split up by accident one of the people that got split up was my wife and so i'm like oh great where is so we go back and and we find them they we were able to to uh, connect with them but as they're coming back there were these guys that were harassing them and one of them was putting his hand on my wife like to stop her um i felt something in that moment why it was jealousy, but it was that this person was looking like they were going to do something or take an improper action against my wife. And so my response is, no, that's not going to happen. Well, fortunately, it, was, it went fine, but 
That's how God felt when he saw what was happening to his people. No, this isn't happening. This is not going to happen. God's affection for and his commitment to his people is fierce. And as God looked upon his people who had been abused and mistreated and oppressed by the nations, his jealousy was aroused. His zealous compassion was stirred. That passionate response is seen here with a great contrast. He mentions in verse 14, the last two words in verse 14 are great jealousy. The first two words of verse 15 are great anger. He responds in great anger to those who mistreated Israel. Those nations that God did raise up to bring consequences for his people, but consequences that would be having them taken in exile. But they took the authority that God had given them and exceeded it. And abused and mistreated and murdered and tortured, committed terrible violence against God's people. We see in the middle of verse 15 that when it says there, For I myself was a little angry, probably in the sense of a, of a short time. But then it says literally, they helped to calamity. And what he's talking about there is that these nations furthered or intensified or abused the power that they had been given over Israel. It was their cruel treatment that greatly angered God. It was their oppressive abuse that stirred his jealous protection, like when that guy put his hand on my wife. And it moved God to take action against the nations. And beloved, in this we can see an important truth. We can be certain that God sees all and he knows all. We can be certain he will defend his people. We can be certain that he hears their cries, that he will come to their aid. Know this, beloved. God sees all that happens. He sees all the suffering. He sees the persecution. He sees the trials that we face. He is watching the abusers. He is watching the oppressors. He is watching ISIS. He is watching those who hate Christ and how they treat his children. He is watching. And in his time and in his way, the jealousy that is stirred in his heart, he will take action. And we can be certain he will also show compassion. That's what we see in verse 16. Take a look there where God says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. And actually the ESV, I think, translates it more correctly there where it says, I have returned, past tense. The perfect tense in Hebrew here and the fact that God had said in Haggai 2.4 that I am with you, he had returned. And notice he says here, He returned with compassion. The word compassion is this idea of a deep love rooted in a a natural bond. It's a tender affection, a gracious mercy, an unconditional commitment. And God says, not only have I returned, but also my house will be built. Imagine how that would encourage them. I'm here, God says. This house will be rebuilt. And then he adds to that. The measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Measuring line is often used to measure distances, hence the name measuring line. But it's used often in construction. And so the message here is being communicated that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Again, you can imagine the hearers of these words, how they would be encouraged by them. For again, what they saw around them was desolate. Much work was needed. The fields, the condition of their fields and vineyards, the city itself, the temple area, they were still under the threat and the thumb of a pagan imperial empire and they still suffered from the threats of their local enemies and you know i'm sure they had seemed probably thought we've we've been forgotten we've been abandoned but notice following christ's intercession god says i have returned my house will be rebuilt and jerusalem will be restored you know what the temple was finished a little more than three years after this first vision. And within two generations, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt under Nehemiah. And God is not finished. Notice verse 17. It says there that someday all of his promises to Israel will be fulfilled and the people of Israel will be restored. And we're going to see a lot more of that as we look ahead in the future chapters in Zechariah. But at this point... I want to ask the question, what is it that we can take away from all of this? Certainly, we cannot miss this. 
Within this first vision, the deep and zealous compassion of God. We see it in the the passionate plea of God the Son as He cries out for compassion upon the people. We see it in the Father's response and His declarations of of great jealousy for, for His people and anger at those who have oppressed them and harmed them. And we see it in the promises of comfort and compassion that God declares for His people. So, beloved, when you are tempted to doubt God's care or when you get overwhelmed with what you see around you, or if you wonder if God is God even noticing, remember the man in the myrtle trees. Remember Christ standing there amidst those the fragrant aroma of those trees, concerned about his people, crying out for compassion. And then remember this. Remember Jesus amidst three other trees. Trees that were cut in the form of a cross. And remember too, on that day when he hung on the cross, that there was another fragrant aroma that emanated from that cross into the throne room of heaven. It was a precious fragrance, sweet aroma that ascended to the very nostrils of the Father. A fragrance that will linger throughout eternity. A beautiful scent that will forever remind us that our God is a compassionate God. Oh Lord, we thank you for this picture. Thank you for your heart of compassion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you always live to intercede for us. which We definitely do not deserve. But by your death on the cross, you have made a way that we could be forgiven. And Lord, you intercede even now on behalf of your people. And that no one can bring an accusation as accusation against those whom you have died for. And so thankful for that reminder. Lord, we need to remember you are a great compassionate God. I'm sure, Lord, all of us going through difficulties now and some of us extreme difficulties and may even question and wonder where you are and why you're not doing anything. Maybe the cry of Christ here of, Oh Lord, how long will you wait? It's the cry of some here this morning. I pray, God, you would use these words, your word in this vision to encourage them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great compassion and empathy and that you intercede for us. And We're so grateful. And your name we pray. Amen.